Wow, what a song, right? Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Are you ready for him to come back? I'm ready. I'm ready for him to come back. Um, we've been going through James, walking through James, and we've uh, covered three chapters so far. And uh, basically, the whole book of James has one question in mind. Um, does the faith you claim to have produce in you a righteous life of obedience to God? That's the question. Does the faith you claim to have produce in you a righteous life of obedience to God? That's not an option. An obedient life to Christ is not an option. Because when we receive the grace of Jesus Christ, it must produce good works within our lives. It must produce good fruit, fruitful living for Christ, for His glory. And James here is speaking to an immature group of believers, that their faith does not look real. And so he defines it. He defines faith for them. Okay? And what it should look like. He gets very practical with these people. As you can tell, he gets down to the street level of Christianity. And that's maybe hard for some of us to hear, because we don't like street-level Christianity. We just like easy believism. And James is fighting that to the core of what he is writing here to these believers. See, James is so practical that he asks questions like, how do we handle our tough circumstances? Do we consider it pure joy? Because... What it will produce in us, it will sanctify us, it will make us more like Christ. Do we believe and not doubt that God will give us wisdom in those times of trial? And He will be glorified in our sufferings? That's how practical He is. He's so practical that He asks questions like, how do we handle our temptations? Do we blame God? Or do we look within and see our sinful flesh And trust that God is good. And He will always be faithful to His promises. He's so practical that He asks, how do we handle the Word of God spoken to us? And that we read, should be reading on a daily basis. How do we handle that? Do we respond in obedience? Or does it just stop at listening? Or even even have an emotional response to it. But never doing the very thing God has asked us. We can hear the Word, and we can listen, and we can understand it, and we can even have an emotional response to it. Wow, that got me. He really stepped on my toes this morning. But when we leave... Do we respond in obedience to what God has asked us to do? That's how practical James is. 
He asked questions like, how do we love and treat the people around us? Do we treat one person better than the other because of the way they dress, the job they have, the people they hang out with, the status they have, the money they have? God shows no favoritism, and neither should God's people. He asked, how do we use our words? Is our words used for the glory of God or for the cursing of man? The very man that he made in his own image. Is your mouth used for praise or for cursing? And now we come to chapter 4. And here's the question. Is our life and our relationships characterized by conflict? Uh Uh-oh. Characterized by conflict? Or are they characterized by peace? We never want to talk about our conflict because we want to act like we don't have any conflict. We want to act like we don't have troubles with our relationships with people. We want to act like that's not even happening. We hide it, right? And we will all do this. We, we uh, drive to church and we're arguing the whole way and then we open the door and everything's fine, right? James is so practical that he asks. He gets straight to the point in chapter 4. And he says, What is causing fights and quarrels among you? Why are you fighting? Why are you quarreling? Why are you so angry that you wish they were dead? That does not look like a person who loves Christ. That looks like a worldly person whose passions are for the world. So, I mean, I know none of us in here probably have conflict, right? Yeah, yeah, just a little, right? Some of us have some conflict in our lives. But where's the first place we look when we see conflict in our lives? Him or her. We'd never look within because our flesh will never let us look within. We always want to look to the other and say it's his fault. It's never my fault. Even if, even if you think they're in the wrong, you still never look within at all. Because our flesh and our pride says, no, it can't be me. It has to be them. It has to be. I have a feeling that a lot of us in here doesn't have to look very far in our lives and very deep in our lives to see the conflict within. You can probably look within your own home, within your own relationship with your husband or your wife, with your co-workers, with your friends, and there's conflict everywhere. What James wrote not only relates to us, but is bringing us to the root of the problem of why we have conflict in our life and not peace. He encouraged us to look to the deepest, very, very deepest desires of our own hearts. And that can be a scary place to go. But we must go there. If you have conflict in your life, you have sin waging war in your life. 
You actually have a conflict not with that person, but with yourself and with your flesh and with your God. Your conflict is not only to that person, but to the very inner flesh and to your God. And so let's read James chapter 4. Let's see what he says. Let's see the questions he asks. And let's see the commands that he gives us. James chapter 4 verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? This is an important verse. But he gives more grace. He gives greater grace. And that is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, make us into the image of Your Son through the power of Your Spirit and through the piercing of Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, James' initial question is what? What causes fights and quarrels among you? What's his answer? It's hard, but what is it? Look within. You got some problems within. You got a war waging within yourself. Now that's hard to hear sometimes. But we have to look inward and see that we have some desires that are not right. We have some desires that are not right for God. So if you have that conflict in your life, look in. Look within your own heart. Look within your own desires. What do you desire on a weekly and daily basis? Do you desire the righteous things of God? Or do you desire the selfish things of your own kingdom and your own world and your own glory? 
Verse 2, it says, you desire and covet, but you do not have. So you kill, you quarrel, and you fight. So all three of those terms there kind of mean a little something different. The, the word quarrel means long-standing arguments. None of us have ever had those, right? Just stand and argue till you're blue in the face. And then you get to the end, you're like, I don't even know why we're arguing. Where did this even start? But that's what a quarrel is. Fights. It's these occasional outbursts of anger. You get so angry that you don't even know what you just said or what you just did. Because you're so angry that it just exploded. And I'm Italian, so I know what that's like. I see that. Kill. I don't think the term, it really means to kill somebody, like murder, uh, but to have deep hatred for someone that you wish they were dead. And you can see that on somebody's face, right? When they look at you, you're like, man, this person does not want me around right now. Just an extreme hatred for somebody. Now, James gives an answer to why we want these things, but we don't get them. What does he say? You ask not. You ask not. You don't ask the one who sustains and created all things. But even he goes further, he says, yeah, you may not ask, but even when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. You ask with the desire to fulfill your own selfish desires. To please you. Like God is some vending machine that when you pray, He's going to spit something out that you want. And Jesus told us to pray differently. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That should be the core reason why we pray. Our Father who art in heaven, make Your name holy. Make Your name set apart. Make Your name glorified. And do Your will. That should be our desire when we pray. If it's not that, then God does not answer your prayers. And that's not Joseph saying that. That's the Scripture. He says you ask, and when you ask for your own selfish motives, He will not give you it. It's very clear right here in the Scripture. We see Jesus pray and ask the Father for His will to be done, even when He knows that His will is going to be hard. When you pray, sometimes it's not what your flesh wants. It's what He wants. And we have to submit ourselves under the authority of Jesus. And we're going to get to that because He tells us a whole list of things that we need to do if we're going to humble ourselves before the living, breathing God. Verse 4, very, very harsh language. 
right? You adulterous people. Let's not skim over that. Let's not just read over that he just called them adulteresses. He told them flat out that they're cheating on God. Now, if I told you, stood up here and told you right now that I was cheating on my wife, we would all gasp, right? Right? We would all gasp at that. Even right now, you're feeling uncomfortable that I just said that. How can it be different? How can it be less than our relationship with God? Do we compare? We can't compare to our relationship with God because He bought us with a price. He has made us His own. We are His. That's the type of relationship we have with God. He calls us His own. That I am in Him and He is in me. And He calls them adulterous people because their desires are not for God, but for the things of this world. And that's why He asks the question, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. It's very clear. There's no going around it. He calls them adulterous people, and he says, if you're a friend of the world, you are not a friend of God. You are an enemy of God. I'm just reading what it says. I don't want to be that guy that stands up here and preaches that way, but I can't skip it. It's there. If you're a friend of God, then you're an enemy of God. And some places will tell you otherwise. Oh, no, no, no. You can, you know, you can love the world and you know, kind of come back and forth to, to Jesus. No. There is no riding the fence. You either are an enemy or you are a friend. Let's turn to John chapter 1. First uh, John chapter 2, my bad. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everyone in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires, they pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. So when he's talking about the world here, being a friend of the world, he's talking about the lust of the flesh, He's talking about the lust of the eyes, and he's talking about the pride of life. That's what he means when he says the world. 
So, what are your affections for? I just want to ask that simple question. I mean, James is very practical, and I want to get very practical with you. What are your affections for? Think about your heart and your mind and where it's been all week. Where have your affections been this week? Where have your affections been last month? Where have your affections been this last year? Are you consumed with yourself? Are you consumed with your own life and your own desires and your selfishness? Or are you consumed with the glorious riches of being obedient to the God who has called you out of darkness and into a life of righteousness? Let's look at verse 5. Let's go back to James chapter 4. Let's look at verse 5. It says, For do you think Scripture says without reason that He jealously longs for the Spirit He has caused to dwell in us? Wow. God longs for us. And this word spirit means your soul, not the Holy Spirit, but your soul. You are a spiritual being, right? We have body, mind, and soul. We all believe we have a soul. But the very soul, the very spirit that God has placed within you, that He's created, that gives you life, that makes you a spiritual being, that, that makes you a person who has affections, a person who worships no matter what. If it's God or it's yourself. He longs for that very spirit that He's placed within you. He longs for your affections. He longs for your desires. He longs for your deepest love. He gives more grace. Isn't He a gracious God? Even when we put our desires for the things of this world and our own selfish motives and desires, He gives greater grace. He gives more grace and He longs for your desires. And He says, He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He will give grace to the humble. But you must be humble. What does it look like to humble yourself before the Lord? What does it look like to be a humble man or a humble woman who lives a life of humility? I think we have a really great example. His name is Jesus. Jesus lived the most humble life on earth. A man who a man who is God yet doesn't consider equality with God, but he humbles himself even to death on the cross. 
That's humility. But humility does not come without submission. And submission doesn't come without the understanding of grace. You cannot function, you cannot become humble unless you experience God's grace in your life. Because pride is the beginning of our sin, but humility is the beginning of God's grace shown in our lives. If you look back in Genesis and you see pride is the beginning of our sin. He says you can be like God. You can know the good and the bad. You can become more like Him. God didn't say this or that. He really said this. You really won't die. Pride. I'm right and I want to be more like God. But humility, Jesus, the beginning of grace. We have grace because Jesus was humbled and He died for us. And James calls us to that same, very same thing. He says, those who oppose God, those who are proud, God will oppose. Those who are humble, God will give grace. So how do we humble ourselves daily? How do we grow more into the likeness of Christ every single day? Not just today on Sunday and then wait till next week. Every day you wake up. How do we do that? James explains it. Verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves then to God. This word submit is a military term. And it means to align yourself under the authority of another. That's what it means to submit. That's what it means to have Jesus as Lord. That's what it means to wake up every day and take up your cross and follow Him. To submit to God is to align yourself under the authority of God. And you know what? We can even do things and submit to God, but not do it with joy. We can do it grudgingly. If any of us have kids in here, we probably understand that, right? You tell them what to do, and they do it, but they do it with a look, or they do it with an attitude, or they say, yeah, I'm doing this, but in my heart, I'm not doing this. You know what I'm talking about? That's not the submission God calls us to. God calls us to a humble submission, a joyful submission. And again, you can never get up enough power and enough strength to submit to God. You have to experience His grace. And when you do experience His grace, submission will happen. But you have to function. You have to live in His grace. Grace is not something that just happened when we got saved initially. We live by grace. 
We submit by grace. Even the idea of resisting the devil, when he says resist the devil, it's, it's, the, it's a one coin, but you have two sides there. You can't submit to God and not resist the devil. Because what you're doing, if you're not resisting the devil, that means you're resi- if you're resisting the devil, then that means you're submitting to God. But if you're not submitting to God, that means you're not resisting to the devil. You're actually resisting to the Lord. Same coin, two sides. But how do we resist the devil? How do we resist him? When we go to Ephesians chapter 6, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6 and let's see what it says. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10. This is about the armor of God. We're just going to read verse 10. Finally, be strong. Don't stop there. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. You cannot resist the devil on your own. That comes from the power, the mighty power of God. Be strong, but don't think, be strong, me. No, he says, be strong in the Lord. You cannot have strength outside of the Lord. So even when we read this, resist the devil, be strong in the Lord. Don't think that you're just going to resist the devil. We need to look at Jesus. How did he resist the devil? Two ways. The word of God, prayer. The word of God, prayer. The word of God, prayer. Remember that. If, if, if you want to read Matthew chapter 4 and read about how Jesus, you know, how, how he resisted the devil and the temptations in the wilderness. Satan used scripture. But we've got to be able to discern and know the lies, because Satan knows Scripture. He knows how to twist it and bend it and make it to where you live a lifestyle that doesn't please God. And then prayer, even to when he's going on the cross, he's praying for the church. We understand that he knows, he knows the only way he can get on that cross is through the strength of God and the power of the Spirit. That's why he prays. And that's why he concludes with, your will be done. So, verse 8, it says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. What a promise. If you draw near, he will not run. He's not hard to find. If you truly draw near, submitting to God, he's not hard to find. Because he will draw near to you. Some of you think that God is very far away. And that he cannot be found. But it says here in James, that if we submit ourselves to God in humility, and we come near, we draw near to him, then he 
will come near. He will draw near to us. That's a beautiful promise that we have. We need to be in an intimate relationship with God. But we must draw near. We must come near. Because He's not just going to come near without you at least seeking Him. He will let you go in your own ways. There is a sense of devotion that you must have to God. Will you draw near to Him? Or will you draw near to the things of this world? And it says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This idea of washing your hands and purifying your hearts, that's an internal and external. Wash your hands. It's an external thing. We see that in the Old Testament. Wash your hands. It says that in the Psalms. It means get rid of your filth. Get rid of your filthy life. Get rid of your sinful life. Wash your hands. Cleanse yourself. And it says, cleanse your heart, purify it. What's your motives? Why do you do things? You can even do things with wrong motives. You can even pray with wrong motives. So what are our motives behind the things we do? Purify your heart. God knows my heart. God knows your heart. I don't know your heart. God knows your heart. We don't even know our own heart sometimes. We deceive ourselves. But God knows your heart. He says, purify your heart. Purify, wash your hands. But how do we do that? Repentance. True repentance. Verse 9, it says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That just seems sad. You know, that just seems depressing. But it's because we don't see sin in reality of what it is anymore. We take sin very lightly. If you sin, if we sin, we sin against a holy God. We sin against a God who deserves a life of righteousness from us. We sin against a God who is wrathful and just. We should come to God in true, genuine repentance. And that's lost. Because we simplify grace too much. And we say, He loves us. We kind of do that even with our own family, right? Where we treat them wrong and then we, we just know they're going to love us anyway, right? We've all done that. So we know they're going to love us. Now seek repentance. Repent from your sin. Grieve well, mourn. It's like a loss. You're grieving. You're crying. You're truly, truly sorry for your sin. Because it's not that you just sinned, but you sinned against Him, the very one you love, and the very one that loves you. We don't see sin in the reality of what it is, if we don't understand that we're sinning against Him. It's not just sin. It's sin against God. And then it says, finally, which is humility is just bracketing everything. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. We want to make ourselves great. We want to make ourselves look good. We want to make our status good. 
But he says, those who are humble, I will lift up. Those who truly submit to me, those who truly seek me, those who truly wash their hands, those who truly purify their hearts, those who truly repent and grieve and mourn and wail, those are the humble. And those are the ones who will be lifted up. Don't try to lift yourself up. Because that's the very opposite thing that God is going to do. He says he opposes the prideful. So humble yourselves. And it's a very scary thing to ask for God to humble you. Humble me, God. It's better to humble yourself before God. Because God will do what he needs to do to humble you. So we need to seek God in humility. We need to repent of our selfish motives and desires and our friendship with the world and our adulterous ways. Turn back to God. Idols may be in your life, but that's why we're examining. Examine your heart. Examine your lifestyle. You have idols. How do you treat one another? Do you have conflict in your life? If you have a lot of conflict in your life, and it's either one of two things, you're very immature in your faith, or two, you're not a believer at all. That's the truth. That's the only two two things. Uh, Let's go to 1 Corinthians. I'll read this one last scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We see Paul dealing with some, some people who are having conflict within the church. And they're saying, oh, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow, I follow this person or that person. And they're fighting and they're quarreling. And this is what he says to them in, in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, For you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? It's all throughout the scripture. And that's how Paul addresses the people of Corinth. He says, You're still infants in Christ. And you're still not ready because you're quarreling, you're fighting. And it's because you're worldly. You're worldly. He even says, if you're fighting and quarreling, it's because you love the world. It's because you have a friendship with the world. You have desires for it and not me. God. That's all throughout the Scripture. When we see fights and quarrels, the way the apostles approached it was, you're still worldly. You're infants in Christ. You're immature. We need to grow up in God's grace and humble ourselves before the Lord and He will lift us up. So while, while we sing a couple songs, I'm just going to ask you to respond genuinely. If you have affections for this world, if you have idols in your life, and you have conflict, look within. Look within your own life. 
Look within your heart and see the desires you have. And I guarantee you, your desires will be for the world if you have a lot of conflict. And we need to seek and repent to God. Submit to Him. Humble ourselves before Him and He will lift us up. The altar is open. There's people here who are mature in their faith. People you trust. Go pray with them. There's men and women here who love the Lord, who submit to the Lord. If you need counseling, if you need wise uh, encouragement, go to them. Pray with them. Seek wise counsel from them. Let's pray.